Uh, most of you know that God blesses us throughout our lifetimes, amen? And He grows us and stuff like that. God has blessed our family, Kathy's and my family, with some amazing experiences over the years that have helped us grow spiritually. And that's something that we need to understand about the experiences in life. There's nothing that you go through, there's no, nothing that God is uh, putting in your life, has planned for your life that isn't designed to make you grow spiritually. There's nothing neutral. He's moving you somewhere. He's moving me somewhere. Even when we don't want to sometimes. Even when we may be not even aware of it. And one of the most influential times that Kathy and I had in our lives was the time that we spent in the military. As most of you know, I spent a career in the Air Force. And through that time, Kathy and I uh, were married when she was 19 and I had just turned 20. We were young and they sent me to Alaska. And we were away from everybody. And we had to grow. And we, let me tell you, we had a lot of growing, especially Kathy, not me. And uh, <laughs> uh, not really. We both had a tremendous amount to grow as far as in our spiritual lives. And during those years, we had an opportunity to move to different places. We were military. And we had to experience different cultures and different regions of the United States, different churches. Did you know that Southern Baptists, Southern Baptists aren't a big deal up in the north. I'm serious. There's not very many Southern Baptist churches up there. All right. You have all kinds of other Baptist churches, but not Southern Baptists. And so different regions of the United States have different churches and different traditions and different things. These military travels exposed our family to non-denominational churches, churches that didn't identify as Presbyterian or Baptist or anything like that. We also uh, uh, were exposed to independent Baptists. They're Baptist, but we're not going to be attached to anybody. We also spent a lot of time with General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. That's what was in Alaska, okay, and pretty big up in the north. That, that was a big mouthful, Gen uh, the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. And so the, everybody knows it as the GARBC. And there's other churches that we've experienced on family vacations and stuff like that. We've had church out on the beach in Hawaii uh, and uh, just all kinds of things like that. This exposure to many different uh, places and regions with churches has taught us that churches can be quite different from one another and still be strong, biblically-based churches. Amen? Yes, they all had their problems. Yes, there were differences that I didn't always agree with. But they were brothers and sisters in Christ who loved God and His Word, and they all greatly influenced Kathy and I into the people that we are now as spiritual husband and wife. Amen? Some of the differences. You want to know what some of the differences were? This is, this is a regional one. When we were stationed in Alaska, uh, we found many of the churches believed that allowing girls and boys to swim together would put kids in a compromising situation that might lead to more immorality. You know what they called it? Mixed bathing. When Kathy and I first came into context, this was contact, we going like, what? What are you talking about? That's just utterly ridiculous. You know why? Because we grew up in Arizona where from the time we could barely walk, we were doing what? Swimming. Guess what you don't do a whole lot of in Alaska? Swim. <laughs> For obvious reasons. We have never grown spiritually like we did in the 11 years through two different tours that we spent in Alaska. God grew us into the man and women that we are today. So, some of the differences weren't just regional, they were theological. 
They all agreed on the theological pillars of the Christian faith, core beliefs like the Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, that salvation can be found only through faith in Christ, and that the Bible is inspired and errant, and we could go on and on. They all believed in those pillars of the Christian faith as far as theology. But there were theological positions, uh, positions that were different between some of these churches. There were theological differences in the end times, you know, post-mill, pre-mill, and all that other kind of stuff. There were differences about how missions should be carried out. There were theological differences on how they would handle man's free will or man's responsibility versus God's sovereignty. There was differences in the levels of separation. How, how bad does somebody have to get before we separate from them as far as another church or whatever? I mean, that was all these things. And even through these differences, even though these differences existed, we learned that there was a unity and a fellowship that could be had because of our shared faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Kathy and I have had experiences of all that travel when many here have not. And we have, ex- have learned that there can be unity even with differences. Unity is extremely important characteristic of, our, of Jesus Christ and His church. And I want everybody to turn to John 17. John 17, starting in verse 11. We're going to see how how important is unity in the church. Starting in verse 17. Chapter 17 is Jesus Christ's high priestly prayer. This is the longest prayer in the Bible that we have recorded that Jesus actually spoke, praying to His Father, very intimate prayer. The first part is He's talking about His disciples. So look at verse 11. He's talking about His disciples here. Verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, that's his disciples, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in, their na- in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Was unity important to Jesus Christ and his disciples? He said, how one is God as a trinity? Complete. And he says, he uses the example, he says, God, as we are one, let my disciples be one. That's a high calling. That's a really high calling. But then he goes on down in verse 20. He's going to switch his focus from his disciples to those who come after them, which would be whom? Us. Listen to what he says. Listen to what he is praying for, for us. We we didn't even exist yet, and Christ is praying this for us. Starting in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. How one, how unified are we supposed to be as a people of God? The unity of the Trinity. He says, like we are, let them be one. And he's not done. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. He states it again. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Is there something going on here? How many times has he talked about this oneness thing? Three times already. So the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So how important is unity amongst his body to Jesus Christ? How important is it? Very. It's a characteristic of who we are. It's not something that we do. It's who we are. And we need to understand that. And we need to understand that that unity is profound. What we see is, he says, there's two things that this unity proved to people. Number one, it proves that our unity proves that Jesus Christ came. 
How important is your unity? If you are not unified in this church, your testimony about the coming of Jesus Christ is hindered. Look at what it says. Verse 21, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may what? Believe. How does the world believe that Jesus Christ came? By looking at us. By looking how we're different. By looking at how unified we are from all different cultures, all different backgrounds, all different economic levels. When people look at us on the outside, they look at us and go, whoa, there's something different about them. And it will eventually lead them to what? A testimony that Jesus Christ really came. He goes on that not only does it testify that he came, that Jesus came, it also, in verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. And what? And love them. Unity is so profound that it speaks to the whole entire world. It speaks to the unsaved world that Jesus Christ came and that God loves them. If that unity is hindered, if that unity is not in your life or in this church, our testimony of the love of God is hindered. Our testimony that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for our sins is hindered. That's how important unity is. Our unity as Christ followers gives us witness that Jesus came to earth and that God loves us. So you ask, well, what in the world does unity have to do with Acts? Well, in our passage today, we're going to see some practical insight into how the church should live in unity from the Apostle Paul. So everybody turn with me to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 17. Let's all stand as I read from 17 to 26. Paul is still on his third missionary travel, heading towards Jerusalem. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who, of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law, and they have all been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then, needs to be, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that may, they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But also for the Gentiles who have believed that we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, of, from blood and from that what, has, what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to accept what you're teaching us today and that you would guide and direct my lips in speaking. In Christ's precious name, amen. You may be seated. It is really important for us to understand the context, the context of what Paul is saying here. Paul, as I've already said, is at the end of his third missionary journey and is on his way to Jerusalem. God has, which we saw last week, has already revealed to him a number of times that when he gets to Jerusalem, what's going to happen to him? He's going to be apprehended. He's going to be abused. He's going to be beaten. God has already told him, this is going to go happen when you go to Jerusalem. 
And Paul wants to go there, even though this hardship is waiting for him. And he, we find in Acts chapter 20, if you want to look back there, verse 16, we find that he wants to be in Jerusalem for two reasons, okay, even though there's going to be hardship. First, Acts chapter 20, verse 16 says this, for Paul has, had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he may, might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Paul was headed towards Jerusalem because he wanted to be there for Pentecost. Paul also wanted to be in Jerusalem to deliver a large offering made by the Gentile churches to the struggling Jerusalem churches. We have to understand something historically in the context here. Jerusalem had been under just harsh times, not only for their belief and being persecuted for their belief, but uh, there was also at this point in time a famine in Jerusalem. So many of the people in the Jerusalem church were poor and destitute. They needed help. What was the church made up of in Jerusalem most of? What, kind, what people? Jews. Jews. Most, the, almost the entire church there was Jewish in nature because this is where the temple was. And so what we find here is that Paul, in his third missionary travels, referred to a collection that he was getting so that he could take it to Jerusalem to help the Jerusalem church. And so I'm just going to read to you a couple of things. You can write these down in your notes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, starting in verse 1, we read, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches to Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. He's going to have people go with them. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And so what we see here, Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church, which was a Gentile church, to do what? Take an offering, take a gift for whom? Jerusalem, your Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. And so what here Paul is saying is, I want you Gentile church to take an offering for these Jewish believers over here in Jerusalem. Now again, do we, we need to understand something. Paul is trying to set something up. Paul it wants the church to be what? Unified. And what is one of the ways that you become most unified in a church? When you start serving one another and providing for one another's needs. Paul knew that. In fact, we also see this in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Paul talks about the offering of the Macedonian churches. He says the Macedonian churches, they were poor in their own right, but they graciously gave what they could give to go to Jerusalem. Macedonian churches were also Gentile churches. And then we see in Romans, Paul wants to go to Jerusalem, then he wants to go to Spain, for Spain to go to Rome. That was his plan. It didn't quite happen like that, but that was his plan. And so here he says in Romans 15 to the Romans, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. Listen to what he says. He says, to some extent, the Gentiles owe this offering to the Jerusalem church. He tells why. For the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings. Did they come to share in the spiritual blessings to the Jews? They also ought to be a service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by the way of you. Paul 
is at the end of his third missionary journey. He is, has this collection. It is a rather large collection. He is traveling with his entourage, you know, Luke and all them. He's also traveling with, with a number of Gentile believers from these churches. For what reason? To make sure that the offering got where? To, to, to the Jews. And also, not just that, we find in Romans 15 also that Paul was not even sure that the, the Jews in Jerusalem, even in their poor state, would even accept it because it was coming from whom? The Gentiles. And so what we're seeing here, Paul is setting all this up. He's bringing these Gentile believers to Jerusalem at Pentecost, be witnesses to the offering being given, and they're also going to be witnesses of how Jerusalem responded to that offering. And so we see this context. Do you understand? You have these two major groups of people getting ready to collide where? In Jerusalem. And Paul understands that if there's not unity between the Gentile church and the Jerusalem church, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be stopped. And so he's helping build unity. So back up and take a look at that big picture. Many of these Jews are poor and struggling, and they're going to have to humble themselves to accept an offering from whom? Their most hated enemies. Two groups of people from very different cultures coming together. And Paul is trying to build this. The Gentile believers are bringing a gift to help those who for centuries had hated them. And the Jewish believers, seeing the love and care of their Gentile brothers and sisters, hopefully will become more accepting because they're helping them provide for their... Do we understand the necessity of unity? Christ talks about unity. We see Paul striving for unity. And we understand that there's still not as much unity as there could be. Now... That goes from chapter 21 back in Acts, chapter 21, verse 17, and we're down to verse 19 now. And let's start in 17. When they had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. The Jerusalem church leaders now have come to meet with Paul. After greeting them, he related one by one, verse 19, the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified him. The church leaders received Paul and his companions very warmly, and Paul gives them a detailed report about what God was doing in the Gentile churches. Paul was always very quick to give God the credit for his ministry success. Can you? He said, I'm going to tell you what God has done in my ministry. Every ministry that you and I do is not to point to us, it's not to point of what we've accomplished, it's to point others to whom? God and what he's done for us and what he's doing through our ministry. And Paul's testimony brought a great God-centered joy. They didn't say, great, Paul, you're doing a good job. What did they say? He said, and when they heard it, they glorified whom? God. They glorified God. Now, don't miss what we can learn here. Humbly sharing how God is using us to spread the gospel brings great joy to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Humbly sharing what God is doing in our ministries, what God is doing in our lives brings great joy to the body of Christ. Think about that. It builds unity within the church and proves that the message of Jesus Christ is powerful and life-changing. We don't serve a dead Jesus. He's alive and sitting at the right hand of the Father. We serve a, a God who is alive and changing our lives. We serve a God who is interested in us and moving us towards what He would have us become. And we do a disservice 
to the gospel when we keep it to ourselves. Paul greatly increased the joy in those church leaders because he said, look at what God's doing in the Gentile church. And I hope and pray that at Sardis Baptist Church, we never, ever come to a point where we are not regularly sharing what God is doing in our lives. It promotes unity. It shows us and helps us understand that God is still working in our lives. When's the last time you actually looked at another brother or sister in Christ in your church and looked at them and said, you want to know something? Look at what God's doing in my life. Look at what God's doing in my ministry. One of some of the most encouraging times with me is down with the ASP and I'll walk down there. So you need to hear what they're learning. And I know I'm going to be down there for a while sometimes because they're learning verses, right? So I stand there, and, and she starts the verse, and we have 50 kids quoting Scripture. And guess who's excited about it? Tammy is excited about it. Guess who's excited about it? I'm excited about it. And you know why I'm excited about it? Because Tammy gave testimony about it, and I get to share in that. Are you sharing what God is doing in your life? When you have an opportunity to give a testimony here in church or on a Wednesday night or in a Sunday school class, do you sit back and you go, oh, I can't talk in front of anybody. I can't. I can't. I, I, I'm not one to speak publicly. If God is doing something in your life, speak publicly. Let everybody know what's going on. And it helps create joy in our lives as it did the, the leaders here. We need to notice the growth that has come in the lives of the Jewish Christians here. They were giving great praise to God for the growth of the Gentile church. And not many years before, they would have reacted with hate and disdain that God would even think about saving the Gentiles. So much had changed in the Jerusalem church up until this point in time. What a testimony this was to the world. You think ever, uh, other nations knew that the Gentiles, the Jews hated the Gentiles? It was a nor normal thing. It was Everybody knew that. And now the testimony was showing what? This is changing. God is changing this ages-old prejudice. And God is changing hearts. And it is giving witness not only to the believers in the church, but to the world around them. They're actually sitting together. They're actually in the houses of one another. And so our testimony shows that God is working. God is growing. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ could change hearts and bring unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. And this is why Jesus says that our unity proves that He came. He is the only one who could have ever brought about a drastic change like that. The gospel is still powerful in changing hearts like that today. But we have come to see in Acts that whenever the gospel is changing lives, whenever the gospel is doing something, what is right around the corner? What's around the corner? Opposition. Every time a church starts to grow, what happens to Paul? How many times have we seen him chased out of the temple or chased out of the city or stoned or beaten because he's preaching the gospel and it's changing lives? If it didn't change lives, would they care? No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't care. And so we need to see here that in, in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 20, they rejoice with Paul, but then they start bringing up an issue, and they're going to, it's going to be an issue explained here, what's in your notes. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands of, there are among the Jews who have believed? So what else is happening in Jerusalem? Are they giving testimony back to Paul? Yeah, they're saying, 
Paul, you see all this stuff going on with the Gentiles. Do you know what we see here in Jerusalem? Thousands of Jews are coming to know Jesus Christ. Because the Jews were coming to Christ, does that mean that everything they learned and all their background disappears overnight? No, but they understand what now? Salvation only comes through Jesus Christ. And that's what they say. And they are all zealous for what? The law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? The church leaders told Paul that God had done a similar work in Jerusalem. Thousands of people were being saved. But these Jews were still being zealous about keeping the ceremonial law. You see, not only did their salvation help them understand who Jesus Christ was and that they needed Jesus Christ, that their sins were forgiven. When you understand that, are we more often than not more zealous to do what God wants us to do? Because we understand, I'm saved. How were that, what was the natural thing that the Jews were going to do to show God how much more they loved Him? Because they understood this, the gospel. They're going to be better at, at all the ceremonial stuff that the law said. Even though they weren't under the law, we won't get into that so much today, but they were still zealous for the ceremonies of Judaism because it showed their love for God. That's how, that was normal to them. That's what they wanted. That's what they would do. But it was going to cause a problem. And what we see here is that a rumor had begun, which we had just read. The zeal that they had for these ceremonies was pr- provided fertile soil for false teachers to weasel their way in. And did Paul have enemies? Enemies? Yeah even in Jerusalem, because there were unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. They were Judaizers. They said, you cannot be saved unless you come and are under the law. And they would want all the Gentile believers to go through the Jewish purification rituals. They had to be circumcised. They had to have all this stuff, or they could not be saved. And so what they've been telling these these new Christians is, did you hear that Paul is saying that what you're doing and being zealous for for the ceremonies of God that God gave you? You are wrong. And Paul, when he gets here, he's going to tell you that they're wrong. Whoa, was that a bad rumor to start? You think that would have got some tempers up, even amongst the Jewish Christians? Because they thought they were doing what? Being God-honoring. They didn't think that, that the law would save them anymore. They understood that, but they understood that the law could show how much I love God. And the Judaizers and these unbelieving Jews were saying, Paul says we have to do a way that no longer can we do this, that it's not right before God. And that's not what Paul said. Paul nowhere in any of his epistles ever says that the Jews were sinning because of they kept the ceremonies. The only time he told them that they were sinning was when they required somebody else to do it. And this is the area that we, which we're not going to talk about this morning, Christian liberty. As long as what we are doing even though it may be different, like different churches doing different things, if it's not sin, if it is not backing away off of foundational doctrines of Christianity, is there a gray area where we can live and be convicted by God to do certain things that other people don't do? We see that in 1 Corinthians. And we'll go through that book someday, and we'll, we'll see how that idea works with Christian liberties. And what we see here is that these Christian liberties uh, help us do what? knowing that it's okay for there to be differences. Help us to do what? Stay unified. We are not supposed to all be carbon copies of one another, are we? we, Is First Baptist down the street supposed to be a carbon copy of us? Absolutely not. Are we supposed to be a carbon copy of Faith Baptist Church? No. Are we supposed to be a carbon copy of First Gaston? No. We all have our personalities, right? 
We all do things and have traditions that other churches don't have. A first is very, very involved in what? What mission work? How many of you know that? How many of you have supported that and praised that and, and prayed for that? Amen? How many of us are involved in Kenya? But what are we involved in? Agomas. Building houses. Food pantry down the street. ASP with 50 kids in it almost every day. That's who we are. But we're still brothers and sisters in Christ with first and with faith and with Gaston, even though there are differences. And we all believe those pillar, foundational, core doctrines, even though we're different. And this is what we see here. These, these Judaizers are trying to break that unity. Paul is trying to build it, and he's, they're trying to start a war between the Gentiles and the, and the Jews. And, and so there's a problem now. And they're explaining this issue to Paul. And what they do, go down to the last part of verse, look at verse 22. What then is to be done? Were they concerned about this? Did they understand what was coming? They will certainly hear that you have come. Why would they were worried that Paul would come? Because they knew that all the Jews were going to do what? Start talking to Paul. Why are you saying the ceremonies are no longer right before God? Do therefore what we tell you. So they've already come up with, a, with a, a plan of action here. They've already come up with a plan of action. And they're going to do what here in verses 23 through 26 is pursuing unity. They're going to say, Paul, this is how we think that you should pursue unity. How you, how you could be part of setting aside what's going to happen here between these two groups. And he says, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under vow. That vow would have been a Nazarite vow. It was of various lengths. Usually the, the shortest time was 30 days. They would let their hair grow. They would not cut it or anything like that. And then they had to go through a purification process. A Nazarite vow was saying, for this period of time, I am going to be solely dedicated to the Lord. They were focused on the Lord. Sometimes it was 30 days. Sometimes it could be months that they would, they would do this. And then at the end of their Nazarite vow, they would have to come in and shave their head, which we've already talked about earlier in Acts when Paul did it, because Paul was under a Nazarite vow. They would shave their head. They would offer that hair, that longer hair, where? As an offering to God at the temple, along with other sacrificial offerings. And so what we find here is we have four men now. It says, we have four men who are under a vow, a Nazarite vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. They're getting ready to be at the end of their vows. They're getting ready to go through the purification ceremony and cut their hair and go through the whole process of coming out of the Nazarite vow. And that was a fairly expensive process. There were offerings they had to offer, and, and that was a fairly expensive thing they had to do. And they're saying, Paul, what we want you to do is to purify yourself, okay, so that you can be their sponsor, so that you can pay the expenses that they would have had to pay. Paul didn't have to purify himself to become under the Nazarite vow. Where had Paul been and who had Paul been with? Gentile Christians, right? Would they have viewed Paul as ceremonially unclean because he had been with Gentiles? Even though they were saved, that would still be an issue. And so they say, Paul, you come in, purify yourself so that you can be part of the Jewish ceremonies and you can sponsor these four men and pay for what they needed to pay to show that it's okay for them to do this to partner with them in this. And we see that in the end of verse 24. Thus, uh, all will know there is nothing with what you have been told about you, but you, have, but you yourself also live in observance to the law. <clears throat> There's a difference between observing the law and being under the law. 
If I'm observing the law, I am saying this is what God has for the Jews. They're saying this is what God would have me to do for me to bring honor and glory to him. It speaks to my heart. It speaks to my relationship with him. Is that okay? Absolutely. But Paul never would have allowed himself to come under the law again where he would have said the law now has authority in my life. He was just going to observe the law to prove to all the people who were spreading this rumor that what? It's okay to still do these ceremonies. Now, we have to understand something. Were the Jews weak in their faith in this area? Yeah, they were. They were still immature. They still, even though they had grown up and this was something, but they were still attached to the law. As we see the Christianity grow among the Jews and move, you see them moving further and further away from the ceremonies because they found what? I don't need those to be close to God anymore. I could be close to God through what? the Holy Spirit that lives within me and through His Word and through prayer and through fellowship with the body of Christ. And we see that changing slowly as time moves on because remember, we're still very close to when the, uh, the Jews and the Gentiles came together in the church. And so just like Alaska, mixed bathing, were they being legalistic about that? Absolutely. Did Kathy and I make a big deal about it? Nope. We told our kids, it's your turn over here, and Kelly, it's your turn over here, and we did what they wanted us to do. Did they tell us that we weren't saved because of that? No. Did they question our commitment to Christ because of that? No. But they were wrong. And you want to know something? From what I understand, that's not really the issue there anymore. Who grew out of that? They did. Just like the Jews would grow out of what? This reliance on ceremony bringing them closer to God. But while they were in this transition period, while they were still hooked to that, was it a sin? No. Not as long as what? They didn't base their salvation or the salvation of the Gentiles on it. And so what we see here is this idea that unity was very, very important to Jesus Christ. We see that in his high priestly prayer. We see that Paul uh, wanted to be, have a unified church between the Jews and the Gentiles, and he was collecting a offering for that, trying to help in a humble way to bring the Jews to accept the gift, which they did uh, from the Gentiles to help them, which before they would not have. And now he's also helping keep the unity because there are false teachers who are going around saying, Paul, you're are doing this and you're, you're telling us that Judaism is completely defunct and, and we shouldn't be doing it. And Paul is basically saying and went along with what these uh, guys were saying and he purified himself and he paid for that. For what reason? to keep unity. He didn't sin. He didn't come under the law. He just purified himself and observed the law in a humble way. Why? Because he wanted to promote unity. And we see this, if you go down through here, in verse 25, but as for the Gentiles who have believed... We have sent a letter of our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And what we understand there is the leaders are saying, we have not changed. Remember, they had a Jerusalem council. Those were the three things that, they, that the Jews asked the Gentile churches, please abstain from these things. And they haven't changed on that. They didn't add now that they got to keep the ceremonies of the law. They're just saying, Paul, we're asking you to do this. We understand nothing has changed uh, from what we had said before at the Jerusalem council. And we're still along that line, and Paul, we're just asking you to do this to help keep unity within the church. And so as we think about that, how does this help us? How does this help us? Well, let's see Paul's attitude in this first. Uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 
Here, Paul is living out in this situation what he wrote about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Starting in verse 19. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Some I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And Paul says, I lay my life aside to help keep unity within the body of Christ. Now, does that mean we just lay aside everything to keep unity? And that is what is often happening in churches today outside these walls. In the name of unity, we all need to come together as a body of Christ. And the problem with that is a lot of the churches that are calling for this unity are not holding on to the pillars of the faith. They either deny the, deny the deity of Jesus Christ, they deny that, uh, the, the inerrancy of the Bible, and they say, come and we'll just, let, we'll just lay that doctrine aside. We'll lay that aside. And we have to understand something. Did Paul ever lay aside the truth for the sake of unity? No. Did Paul get on to all the churches in his epistles about things they were doing wrong? Yeah. Sometimes, especially in the case of Corinthians, he just hammered them. I mean, he took out and he just went whap and said, you guys are way off on a number of things. He always held that line. He never backed away from doctrine. He never backed away from who Jesus Christ. He never backed away from the gospel. He never made the gospel more palatable. But when he could, he says, I'll do things that I, aren't, that I know aren't necessary in my maturity in Christ to help keep the unity. And that's what I hope that we here today at Sardis Baptist Church will take away from this. That we need to strive for unity here. We need to strive for unity with other churches in our area. And we do things with them. All right? And we talk. And the pastors get together on a regular basis to pray for each other and to support each other. Just had a a lunch this past week with them. And, And they have sent us people to our ASP and we have referred other people to them in our life here as a church. Because there's brothers and sisters in Christ, even though there's differences. And I would hope that that we would be able to be unified and stay unified. And this isn't anything because something's going on. This just happens to be where we were at in Acts today. And we need to strive for unity because our testimony that Jesus Christ came and our testimony that God loves us is intimately tied to our unity. And if we want to have a great witness to the world outside, and a great witness for everybody that walks into this church, then they need to see the unity that we all have in Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so dangerous for people who are church shopping today. People go into a church thinking what the church can do, what? What can the church give me instead of saying, what can I do to serve in this church? And people get mad at this church, and they go where? To another church. And then a couple years later, they get mad at that church and move to another church. 
And the problem with that is, what does the world see? A lack of unity. Uh, I don't like what Pastor Mark says, so I'm going to go listen to, I was going to say Pastor Terry, I'm going to have to change that. They're going to go listen to Pastor Matt. Oh, Pastor Matt did something. I, the people have not, I, I just don't feel right with the people at first. So, you know something, I th- Oh man, first, I heard first is, I got some friends that go to first say there's a lot of stuff going on at first today, so I'm going to head over to first. And what is the world watching the whole time? Is there a lack of unity there within the church? Is there, is there, is there uh, <clears throat> bringing our issues and our problems from church to church to church? And that does not bode well for our testimony to the world around us. And so Paul here is saying, I'm going to bring these two groups of people together as much as I can by letting the Jews humble themselves to the Gentiles and accept the gift and allowing the Gentiles to provide for the people who would never provide for them. And Satan doesn't like that. Satan will fight against us and our unity. We have seen biblically that unity is part of who we are, part of our testimony. We've seen that we are to pursue, pursue unity within the church so that we do not cloud our witness. However, we must not make the pursuit of unity the ultimate goal. If we do find that the gospel begins to take a back seat in our quest for unity, then we make sure the gospel is put back in the front seat. That's something that we can learn from this passage this morning. And I hope and pray that it's challenged you. It's challenged me. It's challenged me because sometimes we just get so busy we forget that we are a body. Amen? Let's bow our heads for Father God, we come to you and we praise your name for your word. We praise your name that we see Paul working so hard for unity, the unity that our Savior has commanded us to have. And Father, I pray that we would understand that no matter how good of a witness we are, no matter how many times we tell people that God loves us, if our unity does not show that, Lord God, that our witness is clouded, and confused because father with the indwelling of the holy spirit with salvation in jesus christ we are a unified body we are a unified temple we are priests father we are holy priests to you living in one body serving one savior and one lord father help that to be help that to be part of our life in christ's name amen